Well, um, welcome again to another part of our Comparative Media Insights uh, series. And today we are privileged to have Jeremy Douglas with us here from um, UCSD, where he is a postdoc researcher at the Center for Research in Computers and the Arts um, and Software Studies Initiative. And basically the two areas he's been working on there are software studies and uh, cultural analytics, which you probably know through Lev Manovich. He's co-authored a bunch of pieces with Lev and co-developed a number of um, visualizations with him. Um, Jeremy has a couple works in progress, one with uh, Nick Montfort and Patsy uh, Boudoir and a few other authors. I'll call it 10 print. Nick, you can rattle off the full title if you want. <laughs> um, and he's also working on close, uh, close reading electronic literature, a case study using William Poundstone's project for the Tachinoscope, um, co-authored with Jessica Pressman and Mark Marino. So without further ado, Jeremy. Thank you. Let's get this, whoa, and we're off. Um, oh, oh well, best laid plans. So uh, thank you so much for that introduction. I'm gonna just swap these screens right here and then get started. Um, my talk today is going to be focused on the game's connection. So, and let's see how we're doing there, wonderful. <coughs> Visualizing play, graphic approaches to game analysis and innovation. And that's what it said on the flyer. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, and thanks for the introduction. Some of these visualizations are, uh, I suppose the light will be what it'll be. Um, so uh, I don't want to put, no, no, uh, the back one definitely on. I don't want to put everyone to sleep. That might do a little bit. That, you know, this will be a little more kind after lunch. Okay. so. Um, a bit about myself, uh, I, I was introduced, but I want to I wanna make the connection there. Uh, games and playable media, electronic uh, literature, and information visualization. And I'm active in the software studies and critical uh, code studies communities. Um, this is a large wall of monitors at um, the research facility in San Diego. It has Legend of Zelda on it. Um, but uh, the game's connection for me is game data mining through the Humanities High Performance Computing Project and funded by the NEH and the Department of Energy. Uh, game design research as part of a National Science Foundation project on creative user behaviors in virtual worlds. That's part of uh, Sheldon Brown's Scalable City project. Uh, game visualization artworks in gallery shows and exhibitions, which were mentioned. Uh, a small um, game lab slash recording studio, which I'll say something about. And this global affordable educational game platforms, the, the Play Power Project, uh, which I won't talk about today, but would love to you know, answer questions about if you, if you have them. Um, I do genre studies in games, particularly the evolution of interactive fiction and other and related forms. And finally, I'm really interested in gameplay across media. So game books like Choose Your Own Adventure books that are in print and other branching plot and spatial narrative structures, whether they're comics, digital, print-based, um, video. Uh, so my habit of mind is, is thinking about games historically as media and um, comparatively between media. I started here. Uh, you may recognize this. I've seen, um, I've, I've, uh, seen some things inscribed on uh, I think glass somewhere in the, somewhere in the buildings. Um, and that you are standing, the second person form, you are standing in an open field 
has led me, among other places, in uh, directions across um, media forms like the very strange second person boss battle sequence in Battletoads for the NES. Um, uh, art games like Oliver, Gra uh, pardon me, Julian Oliver, not Oliver Krauss, uh, second person shooter, which is you know, a 2007 art game in which you're literally looking out of the eyes of the other avatar. Um, and similar scenes in other media that are not necessarily interactive. So the, mur the strangulation murder scene in City of Lost Children actually involves the cross-wiring of eyesight so that I am you and, 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 and you are me. Um, uh, this is a picture of a room full of consoles. You have a few of these around of various historical periods. I've been uh, checking all the ones I'm able to see. Um, so far, my room is winning by two, but I'm sure by the end of the tour of the day it won't be. Um, but historical access to uh, deep understandings of, of, of game, including you know, pre-digital and then through all the ears, is really important to me. And making a recording studio and play spaces um, has just been part of um, what, I, what I do. Uh, my office currently has about 2,000 Japanese language PS1 and PS2 games stacked in it because Sony of um, uh, Sony PlayStation America division gets them mailed there and then doesn't know what to do with them. And we were the closest university. Uh, it was that or a dumpster. So, um, so I, say, I guess I'm, a, I'm saying I'm a hoarder. Now you know. Um, and we're just not going to talk about play power. We can we could always do it after. When I'm not doing game stuff, I'm often doing media visualization of non-gamic media, uh, which um, this process of media visualization of large collections to look for patterns across uh, cultural forms, especially in visual media, is something that Lev Manovich has called cultural analytics. And um, we've spent far too many uh, late nights slaving over a hot wall like this. Um, Sometimes that work happens on ultra-high-resolution re ultra displays. But honestly, most of the time, it's because they take great pictures. Uh, most of it happens on, on laptops. Um, and that, those are the kinds of um, art pieces uh, that are also analytic pieces. This is about the evolution of the Google logo over uh, the first 11 years of um, Google Doodles uh, in, a, in a particular design space. And this is the, the best-known piece that I did with, uh, with Lev that's uh, Every Time Magazine cover, 1923 to 2009, looking at saturation, uh, uh, saturation and, uh, and uh, texture values as they changed over the whole thing. So my talk today is not about any of that. My talk today <laughs> is about gameplay and visualization. Um, I'm going to try to cover applications of gameplay visualization in several areas. Uh, historical research, media theory, design and development, and creative art practice. Um, if it works well, they'll all sort of blend together by the end. Part of the talk is going to take the form of a survey um, looking at what everyone's doing, but with a particular focus on my own past and current projects uh, because I'm bragging. The challenge of knowing gameplay historically, individually, and in mass culture, that is, what is gameplay? What happened? All those people went on World of Warcraft for 10,000 hours. What was that? What is gameplay? Or I played this AAA title for 60 hours. What was that thing? <coughs> is, um, 
is a challenge because gameplay is often in the cultural category of ephemera, you know, or or simply just um, an anthropology. It can't be addressed any other way. So information visualization offers an interesting intervention into that space. It also offers a, an opportunity to reimagine games, new modes, new idioms, new genres, and I'm gonna by the end of this talk, hopefully make that connection that uh, visualization addresses certain aspects of the ephemerality of gay play for the individual and, and for groups and across genres and historical periods, and that it opens a door to imagining new design. So <clears throat> game visualization and research, probably the most famous article would, be, of course, be the one that Wired published. And this was, a, this was an article on. Um, on uh, Microsoft Labs Knee Bungie, they get renamed, and then uh, and then they, uh, the 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 new, larger, more amazing um, lab facilities and all of their high tech visualization um, <coughs> is featured. So Microsoft Labs here, um, studying Halo Three, <coughs> is doing a particular type of um, uh, high cost, high tech, high manpower, high play band through. Um, industrial level AAA game visualization. They've got heat maps with tons and tons of play on it, and they're mapping that into their levels, and then they're looking at where people are dying, and they notice that the, it's skewed. So one size has a slight advantage over the other in um, in team group play, and they rebalance the di they rebalance the design. The skew goes away. Good design has happened, and good design has been enabled by visualization. Uh, this is another, um, this is about the, the color codes indicate time stages and you can tell by the good separation of colors that people, almost all people are moving through the level at a regular pace and a level is taking a certain amount of time. You're not getting a wild deviation in how long it takes and you're not getting huge groups of people all getting stuck at one thing. A small group of the oranges have gotten ahead of themselves over in dark blue town. Um, but this is telling a particular narrative. <coughs> this says, this form of visualization has internal access to the design process, right? which means it's useless for 99% of all games, which either you don't own or you aren't making or are historical artifacts. It also assumes certain things about the infrastructure that has access to uh, your betas and how your betas are done that they're done in-house or that they're done over a network with particular types of network architecture. Increasingly, these things are, <coughs> it's less hard to assume a constantly networked, deployed beta with built-in data collection and a visualization output. Y you, can, you can do this more uh, than you used to be able to, but it does represent certain barriers to entry for designers, and it represents an absolute barrier to entry to researchers. That is to say that almost all artifacts someone's interested in studying the design of, they will not be able to follow this model to use visualization to create knowledge about games. So they don't have the access, and they're not doing it at design time. So I'm going to be talking about uh, visualization and gameplay in terms of representation and forms. I'm really thinking of the visualization as a metaphor uh, or a set of metaphors that enables you to get a new view on an object. It's a kind of transformation, but it's a situated one. It's strategic. Doesn't it represent an ultimate truth? And it, even more importantly, 
takes part in a long tradition of the mobilization of that metaphor. So let's think about montage for a second and using montage to understand gameplay. Well, the first thing I'm going to show you is montage, right? So when we use visualization, we're often using deep forms and deep forms that are being used across all kinds of areas of human endeavor, including the arts, the sciences, um, uh, and various kinds of um, uh, applied, applied research that doesn't consider itself either. So when we treat gameplay recordings as sequential data, we're actually taking the, the shoebox full of slides that represents our film held up to the screen one slide at a time and manipulating those images in some way. Uh, this is uh, Laser Blast for the Atari 2600, better known as the Atari VCS, if anyone's written a book about it in the audience. Um, sorry, it's always going to be the 2600 to me. Um, but this is the same data of this same recording of uh, a, a short, a very short period of Laser Blast loaded into the same kind of a 3D viewer that you would use to look at, say, a brain scan. Um, where you take many, many pictures of a brain at different depths and then you reconstruct a kind of a solid. And this sculptural object indicates um, the temporal spatial distributions of all of the little tanks and all of the little spacecraft. So it's a, it's a metaphor, uses dimensionality. We could use different ones. We could use superimposition or we could use something like the uh, median or the mean value so like a long exposure photograph, we've taken all of the different moments of play and we see new knowledge, right? We might watch the video over and over and over again and never see this spot is the spot, but we can see it clearly here. So this is about design knowledge. It's about, it's about the particular distribution of the pattern of winning play uh, for people who who have learned that these classic Atari games are, are almost instruments. You, you actually um, play them in a very, very specific way that, that produces the optimal outcome. But of course, montage can simply be a montage. Um, this is Fatal Frame 2. Uh, you can see the, um, I believe that is actually a, a cutscene and not, is the, yeah, yeah, okay, we had a lunchtime discussion about this term. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Keep me honest. Um, so uh, we're looking at moving in and out of menu modalities, play modalities, and short clips where interactivity has been entirely cut off. Uh, and this is a browsable object. There's a tradition in uh, the arts. There's actually a recent art practice. Um, Cinema Redux, if you're familiar with it, has actually been inducted into MoMA's permanent collection at this point. So it was, it, was a, it was a repeat offender, and now it's on the team. This is Jaws. And you can see the dark scenes that trisect the film. And the light blue bands. Uh, and I'm not even going to get into the interpretation of Jaws. That's not my job. The point is that this is one potential entry point to discussing the temporality of Jaws and the way, as a macroscopic object, uh, the film is constructed and also an entry point that cartographically says, what's happening right there? What is that scene? What's going on in that scene? Um, so both uh, centroids and outliers 
and a sense of orientation. It's not just the red scene. It's the red scene in the middle of this white and blue scene that occurs between the two dark spots in the middle act. That's, so we are oriented. <laughs> now, William Huber, an incredibly talented uh, doctoral student in the arts history program at UC San Diego, made this in our lab. Uh, it's Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2. This each re represent between 30 and 60 hours of gameplay. The one on the left and the one on the right. Game one, game two. The sampling rates have been changed to normalize them to a solid block. So we're actually, when we read across this thing, we're not reading one hour, two hour, three hours. We're reading 10%, 20%, 30% of whatever this holistic structure is. Now, William has played a lot more Kingdom Hearts than I have. And so in some ways, uh, his expert knowledge also helped him to make full use of this instrument, which he built. Um, when I talked to him about it, after we had uh, finished constructing the final versions that we were happy with, and said, what do you see? He said, well, I know that intellectual properties in this Disney Square Enix crossover game structure the space. You basically visit different intellectual properties in the Disneyverse as a way of visiting levels. And so I can see the Little Mermaid right here, right? And actually, I start to, to me, it looked like a hacky sack when I first saw it. Like I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see anything. But he said, I can actually see the way some of the worlds that I know well that are strongly branded, and they're all strongly branded, then dissolve into a series of rapid revisits to place that I've been, places that I've been earlier in the end. So it's a sandbox game that grows out, grows out. You unlock a level, unlock a level, unlock a level. And then there's a series of rapid shuttlings back and forth between different brands, different locations that ends in a kind of a synthesis. Now this way of describing uh, this game is situated in the metaphor that we used to frame it, right? We've built, a, we've built a tool, we're looking through the tool, and then it informs our vocabulary. Maybe limits it, um, maybe creates new possibilities. Um, but you can't just have a film strip. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to have a, 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 a a huge sheet, a contact sheet of images, you can just cut and splice individual keyframes that represent things. So when I did a data mining project with uh, an undergraduate, Colin Wheelock, on um, Knights of the Old Republic, we were interested specifically in this issue of transitions between different modalities in the game and wanted to see how they worked in relationship to something later that had to do with, um, had to do with the, the, the mission structure and the way the stories about morality get told. But here, cinematic, menu start, menu loading, 3D motion, letterbox, um, these things are being detected by very simple um, computer graphic algorithms. Rather than hacking the game code or calling up the studio and begging, um, we just ran the whole video through the wood chipper and saw what came out. What comes out is the fact that you spend about 30 to 40 percent of your time playing Knights of the Old Republic in loading screens and menus, which is interesting, right? I mean, I think, I think actually there could be a lot more literature on the amount of time people playing interactive media spend staring at progress bars. 
Um, although that's probably changes historically over time and it's much more complicated. So this is the same data. I've just wrapped more of it up so that you can see a longer version of the same recording. And you can see how the um, little machines that we've uh, written to try to notice when a letterbox happens, and there's probably a cinematic um, here and here, um, are detecting the value that they're looking for and then the bar automatically classifies the story of the progress through the different modes. Now, <coughs> can be error prone, um, but it scales a treat. So if you want to do 700 hours of AAA titles and think about narrative structure and then dive in, definitely the way to go. Um, and this is a, a similar work on the, um, the various gameplay events arranged by what, what mode the player is in at the time. So when you take this kind of film strip approach, this is, a, um, this is a piece that I did with uh, the undergraduate student I mentioned earlier, Colin, and also um, a designer named uh, Sergey. Uh, what this is showing is from 1988 to 2009, selected titles that we cherry picked that we were only looking at that question of letterbox or no, cinematic or interactive. And the question was, is there a historical progress from one form of treating cinematics to the other? Now, that's a question that this, this got sent to an art show. This can't answer that research question because we picked our 10 favorite examples that we knew for having idiosyncratic cinematics. And sure enough, um, there's uh, you know, intercutting, uh, heavier intercutting here, here, and here. There's incredibly long intercutting here and here. Um, <coughs> Silent Hill, one way. Indigo Prophecy, Fahrenheit, another. Ninja Gaiden, right in the middle. So no historical trend. But again, the interesting thing for this to begin to think about the relationship between these two formal properties is that you could start to draw a map of a formal structure across a vast vast landscape of genre, just let's play videos, download 5,000 hours of them, from, of them, and then start to pick your points of intervention in the space. What are the, what are the crucial games? Um, and this is just a closer look at some of the data that's embedded and then what these, um, what these uh, interactive, non-interactive um, simplifications look like. So uh, I'm going to uh, move more quickly so that I can uh, get to a case study of actual design and development. But the last, I'm going to give an example of multiple spaces. When you take, take uh, night lore, incredibly important in terms of isometric design, and uh, when uh, uh, the uh, MFA uh, student Daniel Wren, who I also, um, also collaborated with on, on Regame and owns part of the, the console collection, uh, a same, uh, I know, right? That's probably, probably you know, eBay. Um, when he assembles a montage of exactly the same time, there's a highly, there's something incredibly spatially suggestive about an isometric montage. In fact, it starts to look like a map of the game, even when it's not. And this desire to map games, this is a game take, this is a game map taken from VG Maps that I mentioned earlier of, uh, the original Legend of Zelda game. But, but this is actually 
ethnographically, culturally speaking, this is something where if we go to um, VG Maps or one of the other mapping services um, for games, you can find community-created cartography for games. This is a gauntlet and gauntlet 2 right here. Every level, every, you know, mapped out and assembled into these spaces that are about cr causing design to become navigable, often done by hand. And this is continuous, right? Like it, it predates Nintendo Power Magazine, although that was a major part of, of those periodicals functions. The desire to, to see, apprehend, possibly control, or possibly just um, nostalgically emote with the game space. I'm going to um, talk briefly about layers and superimpositions, and there's going to be some audio. Um, and I want to look at the way people do this kind of work in the wild. In the wild means not me. <laughs> Anyone who's not me is in the, in the wild. Um, this is Averaging Gradius. Who's seen it before? OK, OK, this is going to be fun for you guys. So this is a chroma keyed version of eight or 10, I can't actually remember, and I can't tell right now, um, of uh, a goodly number of different people all playing Gradius. Now Gradius is locked scrolling, so the, if you don't die, the entire level will go by in exactly the same way at exactly the same speed. So it's perfect for chroma keying and superimposing. It's a key point about information visualization and game design. You pick the designs that work well with the techniques you're going to use uh, so that things become toy problems and you get uh, fast, gratifying results. Now there's all kinds of things that are happening here that I'm just, I'm just ignoring. It's all just going by. But I think one of the things you can see is that other than there's a lot of chaos at certain points and then certain solutions that almost everyone gravitates to except for like, oh, those weirdos, right? That population distributions in this complex data-rich way, rather than interviewing five people and saying, how do you play Gradius? He actually, um, Ron actually showed us how people uh, play Gradius and discovered a couple really exciting things while he was doing it. One of the things he discovered was, um, well, he discovered several things. One of the things he discovered was that the uh, volcano at the end of the level is actually more lethal than the end boss. Uh, everyone knew this anecdotally, but he empirically proved it. So good bringing the science. Viz can't normally do that. Another thing that he found was he found that ex after exactly um, 27 seconds, the end boss will, uh, and I'm not sure if I can fast forward this, I may move on, I think I'll just move on past it, that after exactly uh, 27 seconds, the end boss of this game will auto self-destruct. So um, you play until you beat the boss or until 27 seconds have gone by, whichever happens first, and then you win. This was not known. I mean, the designers knew, maybe somebody knew, but this was something that when six of the end bosses all of a sudden spontaneously self-destructed at exactly the same second, he pointed at it and said, ah, interesting. So I want to contrast that, which was all chroma keyed and done in Adobe Creative Suite, that poor, poor man, with emulator-based work. So these are 134 playthroughs of a perverse remix 
of Super Mario uh, World called Kaizo World. The level is impossible. It's impossibly impossible. It's unplayable. As a game design, the only way that the level makes sense is in an emulator-based environment where you can constantly flash save your position and play forward the next three seconds. This game design, as such, wouldn't exist if someone wasn't playing it in an emulator. But what we just saw was a rapidly branching story of 134 different plays. And it wasn't just play, it was emulator play. The, the emulator itself did the recording, and the artifact that's produced on the other side of it is part of the platform that enabled the design of the level in the first place. So <coughs> massive superimposition of data giving you a new view on, um, on uh, gameplay, but it's totally specific to the emulator environment. Now this is engine-based. Who's seen a 1K project? Good. All right. We're, so this is 1K project 2. It's based in Trackmania. And essentially, since there's level editing, load 1,000 cars into Trackmania and set them on auto and set them off. It's a little more complicated than that, but not much. But I would call this a fluid dynamics test of gameplay systems, right? That essentially, you're learning a lot about the guidance track algorithms, potential failures, and the way they're distributed, and the way whole environments work, not by hiring 5,000 beta testers. You know, this is actually really about your, your autopilot. Um, but by just run it, on the, run it on the iron. Just put it into the engine and see what happens. very different from a long exposure photograph. What's this a photo of? Traffic, yeah. Headlights coming towards you, taillights going away from you. We all know what this is. We don't have to be, we don't have to be told even though there are no cars in the picture. Um, that's very much the way the tradition of average imaging and the way that these algorithms go into security cameras and airports, um, the idea that hundreds or thousands of superimposed faces can locate a unique identity, and that you actually use databases of hundreds of thousands of superimposed faces to triangulate someone's uniqueness, has a really long uh, scientific tradition. Um, Sir Francis Galton was experimenting with superimposing uh, the faces of four or eight different criminals or the faces of nine or six different tuberculosis patients to try to see if he could identify physical typology that related to like um, being likely to become a royal engineer, right? So it's a, it's a genre theory. It's about family resemblances. There's, it's actually, you know, phrenology, discredited science, et cetera, et cetera. But um, uh, uh, Galton was not hate-mongering. He was trying to figure out if you could see who was susceptible to tuberculosis or um, amenable to officer training. So when an artist like Jason Sullivan does this, he takes a whole yearbook. Uh, this is about eight years ago. I'm sorry, I should have put the date up. He takes a whole yearbook and um, takes a class and then another class from the same high school 20 years later and superposes all the male and all of the female photos. Now, this tells you nothing about a person. It tells you a lot about not just fashion, but photography. 
That is to say that not, o not, only, not only did aspects of you know, hair and dress minorly change, and a lot of things didn't, but the actual cropping of the image and the way that the subject is treated by the camera changed from yearbook to yearbook. That's really common. Sullivan did data mining of the internet for photos of baseball, little league photos, graduation photos, and Santa. And I'm left-handed, so I noticed immediately the rightism that's just rampant. I mean, weddings actually, not so much, but I won't, you know, still, still I'm, uh, everyone likes the right knee uh, for some reason. Let's move on. Rosemary Fiore, also an artist. This is Tempest. These are all of the levels of Tempest and all of the positionalities. It's the super matrix of the Tempest possibility space. And in her untitled photo series, uh, this was photography on cabinets, um, she was not photographing the game, although Tempest looks like that. It looks, oh, that's the game. She was photographing her gameplay. So that, that, distinction, that distinction is incredibly important. Jesper Jewell, some of you may have heard of, doing the exact same thing, but saying, I'm not an artist, I'm a researcher. I'm looking at Defender. This is Defender. Um, very interesting uh, blog post. The positionality of the avatar and the sort of threat matrix is one of the major things that come out of it. But you also notice things like the fact that the um, last digit is just to make us feel better. It never changes. It's not possible. No matter how you play Defender, it'll always be a zero. So what doesn't change, what, has no what contains no information in the design is often as important as what does. Uh, in Indigo Prophecy, this is what doesn't change in the cutscenes. It's the user interface. Um, that's, that's what comes out. And when you see things that don't change, sometimes the things that don't change are the genre. What game is this? Gartar Hero. Gartar Hero. And um, sometimes they're not. This is flow. It has a center camera system that is absolutely locked on through the entire game. This is Orbient. It's very similar, but it has a two camera system. And you can actually tell which camera is used more often. The center one is. This one's used less often. Um, there's a lot more that we could get out of Rock Band or Guitar Hero than just, hey, there's the user interface. Look, look Ma. Um, you get a little bit of anticlimactic sighing. But if you take a transverse slice of your video stack, you actually have this wonderful graph of the popularity of the band over the course of the thing. So you can data mine, you can data mine player data without any access to code out of YouTube videos. Um, and see in fight games, in anything that has metrics. Games are already information visualization. They already contain them on their surface. They're structured that way. And this thing right here is the sheet music for the level. So I just took a transverse slice right across the fret bar, and there they are, all the notes. Uh, so if you wanted to read all of the music out of all of the levels of all the musical games and do some music project, this would be a good starting point to find out which levels are interesting and which aren't, if you wanted to look at all of them. Um, there's a kind of completist fetish to a lot of this work, and that's, that's, that's the, the way it often goes. You create these wonderful objects, and then you want them. Uh, this layered thinking, these transverse slices that contain data, are a lot like dendrochronology, the reading of tree trunk rings, or like chronostratigraphy, which is uh, 
the Earth is normally a surface like a screen of a game, and you don't read it. But then when you slice down through the Earth, history, Earth, Earth back further in time, we're told, is the usual way. So when we slice games, we're actually participating in a form of temporal reading that has a tradition in other media. Um, slit scan photography or Xerox photography as well. I'm going to take a bite. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to look away. And the picture contains a 10-second story of a person's life as the, as the slit or the Xerox bar slides across the frame. Um, we, there are other digital arts that do similar forms of representation, but the point that I'm trying to make here uh, is that um, the point that I'm trying to make here is that when we view gameplay video as an artifact of this ephemeral experience, we can choose to look at the way it's structured differently, substituting time for space or space for time. Um, I'm going to give one case and then close. Uh, the case is the Scalable City project that I mentioned earlier, which I was, um, I joined uh, Sheldon Brown and his experimental game lab in contributing to. Uh, who here is familiar with Scalable City? Okay, good. Let's, let's do this. So Scalable City um, is a uh, fractal landscape of endless suburbs in which players navigate, their avatar is a tornado of cars. And they explode suburban structures and recombine them into bizarre organic fractal shapes. Um, but that's not really doing it justice. Um, this, um, this is what that looks like when you're actually doing it. Um, and it's gone through many iterations. This version is the multiplayer version. Uh, a lot for a lot of its history and documentation, it's been single player only. So, um, there we go. Okay, so that's scalable city in a nutshell. You grow the road systems, you recombine the buildings. Arcologies form and are destroyed, and um, it's a and and and. Uh, if you are looking for a goal, constant suburbification is one of the things you can um, you can aim for. Okay, so <coughs> scalable city um, involves this kind of fractal replication across large landscapes. Those landscapes are situated on a gigantic floating cube world, which is continuous in time. It's running on a bunch of well, it was running on a huge chunk of cell processors, but. Um, and you can move in the space continuously from one world to another, and they regrow their landscapes as you leave and enter the spaces. So when we were initially doing this, um, uh, the telemetry part of this project and thinking about, well, how are we going to collect uh, live data off of the trackball, see when people hesitate, stop, slow down. It's all very analog. You know, what is turning? At the same time, we have this event model. We're the developers now. We can wire it to send a message. Every time a house piece gets touched, every time a new building is created or destroyed, we can send an event and say, activates, 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 and here's our um, entering new cities. So here's where, where they actually go over the edge of the world and go to a different part of the grid. And we could visualize this data. So we're sort of heading in this bungee um, direction. Pardon me, Microsoft Labs. Um, 
And we have this really awkward Cortonian space where we can sort of float dots that have to do with our grids. And it doesn't actually map up with the way you think about a planet that you're moving on. Um, we need a Mercator projection, really, for the game world we've created. Um, maybe something like this, you know, that sort of kind of unfolds it. And that we can superimpose our play data on in a way that can be both intuitive and yet related to the original object. Now we start thinking about this and just started to, okay, I stayed up late one night and decided that I had nothing better to do than to um, build a prototype in Quartz Composer over the next three days. And um, <coughs> so once the prototype is created, the prototype is a live information visualization appliance that we can pipe everything we've wired out of the game or harvested out of the game graphics um, into and reveals all the modes of the game world and that you can also do high-speed replays of gameplay on. In theory, it would support live, but it does not support live yet. So this is one high-speed replay um, with a trackball channel being pulled in here and the way that the user is um, occupying the space indicated by the lagged red dots. The orange uh, flare is the kind of amount of time spent in any given place. And this thing, this object, um, is uh, live. I recorded a movie of it, but this is me pressing keys and dragging it around with my mouse. Um, so closing the connection, hey, why don't we build some of this back into the game? That in, in essence, one of the key, and we could talk about it in indie games during the question and answer period or other things, in essence, any, any attempt to deeply grok a game that's happening as part of a design cycle is intimately related to attempts to deeply understand games that are part of play. And actually, they form a conversation where you can start to imagine that any that any truly compelling innovation that you can make is either a new perspective that you could add to the existing game that you're considering, or you've just invented a new genre. And that, hopefully, brings us to a close. Well, thanks, thanks. Um, open the floor to questions. And as usual, you have to use the mic because it's being recorded. So. Thanks. I thought that was great. Um, so I'm kind of interested in the different kinds of models of application for for a lot of the the design kind of analysis. Um, you talked about Microsoft Labs and the approach of kind of using heat maps and that sort of visualization mm -hmm. to iron out the kinks in the design process and sort mm -hmm. of smooth over design flaws. Um, on the other hand, you have sort of the after-the-fact research application, which is kind of trying to uh, be objective about a game and, and map it in some way that we can make uh, claims about mm -hmm. it. But uh, I think there's an interesting sort of model where you draw attention to the, the insights that are gleaned kind of in the design phase by mm. this. I think um, mm. Valve rather famously sort of subjects their playtesters to all sorts of analytics. And then um, in a game like Portal, if you walk into a room and make a mistake that they've noticed many players making, oftentimes they'll put a clever line of dialogue in there to say, like, you know, we're, we're aware that you're, you're doing the same thing that lots of players do. And uh, I feel like in those moments, they tap into something really sublime, which is that 
you know, they're 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 pointing out that you belong to, even if you're in a single player environment, you belong to this mass of players. Mm-hmm. You're part of this mm-hmm. community, which is interesting. Games are a mass medium, but they're not a broadcast medium. You sort of experience them privately and in a different way every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, do you think there's a narrative application here? I mean, there's there's sort of this. I, I don't know how to put it into words, but there's almost this kind of sublime precognitive insight that it gives us when you map out a huge number of playthroughs. You can actually start to get some insight, which narratively might be powerful, given you know sort of narratives of omniscience that we've always had in culture. So Absolutely. Could you talk about that I again? mean, there, there is. I mean, there are, there are always narrative applications. The few that I'm most aware of that follow directly from some of these projects, one that I didn't spell out was that the, um, it actually became an eager grant. It was Creative IT, but the uh, Scalable City project specifically was about not creative design, but creative play behaviors which is very difficult. What counts as a creative play behavior, especially in a highly constrained interaction space? Right, well, for example, you're on rails. You make branch points, but you're in theory, you're, you're kind of a free camera on rails uh, in most of, most of the scalable city. So um, uh, temporal analysis of, of verbs, of interface design, obviously, uh, interviews and, and ethnographic work and videotaping and the whole, the whole banana is always fantastic. But the fact is that when you do something in a game where you're actually able to richly mine and log it, when you look up, you're not looking up. You're looking up after the previous 10 things that you just did. Right? And so that, that idea, the way, you would, the way you would follow it if you were doing analysis in music or in economics, of saying that this event is going to be interpreted in terms of the things that came before, and then how do you how do you cluster and create a language for that? That language is partly a theory of player types. It's partly a design language, and it's partly um, bootstrapped analytics. You know, you just let the clusters fall where they may, and then try to try to read the read the horse knuckles to mix several metaphors. <laughs> Uh, yeah, very insightful um, and and very interesting. Um, one of the one of the thoughts I have is um, you know a whole collection of games that have actually a really long history of data visual- visualization is sports. Um, you know, it's of course this is the thing I bring up, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I mean, you can go as far back as you know whatever 1941 with a with a hit map for Ted Williams, you know, mm-hmm. 406 hitting season. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, you ended kind of with this note of like building the visualization back you know, into the design, into the games. And I'm wondering if you have a sense, it's something I see in sports video games a lot actually now, more recently, they're building the kind of visualization into the sports games where you can see your hit charts, Mm -hmm, you can see these sort of mm -hmm, things. mm -hmm. But I'm also wondering why, you know, for this this kind of games tradition that's a little bit younger than sports, obviously, but with such a long history of visualization that precedes it, why why is video games so slow or so far behind in in the application of, of visualization to analysis of performance and, and well, design? I don't know. It's a complicated. It's a multi-dimensional question because on the one hand, I mean, if you say analytics, right? If you want to go into the industry and do analytics and just you can. Um, if you're doing virtual economies, you never have to look at a picture. You could just go work on world of some corner of World of Warcraft's virtual economy, and like just do numbers. Right? So, so I think there are there are aspects, there are areas of games that have different different analytic dimensions to them, and that involve different question sets. I'm more of uh, a cultural historian and comparativist who's really interested in design. Right. So I ask these kinds of questions, and 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 as 
the aesthetics of visual artifacts really matter to me. Now, uh, you could argue that some aspects of, like, say, simulation of role-playing games, uh, for example, and I'm thinking also of, of certain Japanese traditions uh, and certain traditions coming out of tabletop, you could say they are really in line with the baseball tradition. It's really about the joy of stats, right? And that's, that's actually the game. Like the, 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 um, any skill-based interaction is, is almost a distraction from the joy of stats. Uh, so in that case, the question is not, are games visualizing themselves fast enough, but why is it that if so many games are already visualizations, we don't think of them that way? We think of them as something else. Um, I wanted to ask how you'd uh, visualize text adventures. I <laughs> perhaps <laughs> that's a topic a great, that's you thought of before. <laughs> perhaps a topic I've spent a, a great amount of time on. Um, I'm trying to decide whether I should spend two minutes and just pull out the other slide deck that I have open in case we had enough time. Um, uh, so, yeah, let's just let's actually just just do this. Um, so, so the thing that's interesting about text adventures and um, and 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 interactive. Let me just pull this open. Towards the position of a matching narrative. Yes, blah. So people visualize text adventures and game books reflexively. You could almost leave someone on a desert island and if they had codex literacy and encountered a text adventure and figured out how it worked and you gave them a napkin, they would draw, they would draw the box chart on it. Like I, I know that's overstating the case, but it's, it's, completely, it's completely pervasive. Uh, we're just gonna speed through some random stuff here. So. Um, you know, Quinault drew, 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 drew a chart in the, in the workshop. Um, let's just not look at that stuff. And um, uh, artists do it, uh, social pranksters do it, even mom and dad does it. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but the, this, uh, this idea that in a way, the, sp the spatial metaphor, the idea that not uh, yeah, I'm looking through comics here for a second in McLeod. Um, but this matrix that Shiga uses to design, meanwhile, as an interactive book object that's based in comics but is actually a massively branching plot structure, is based in time. That's what the branches signify as time. But the idiom in interactive fiction is space, right? The idea of the room and the room as the unit of design means that on the one hand, um, we get box charts. Like in both cases, they seem to be intimately related. Um, but on the other hand, when talented information visualization designers like, this is Chris Swinehart, I believe you pronounce his name, showing links between pages in a codex normalized form of the book and mapping outcomes uh, does it, or when, um, Matt Kirschenbaum asks his undergrads to do it as an as assignment and gives them absolutely no instruction. Um, this, is what, uh, this is what you get. You get, a net, you get network theory. So to me, the interesting thing and the way I've gone in design uh, with that is to actually create um, uh, 
visual design languages for IF that are non-spatial because what you should, the next logical step is to open up GraphViz or Visio or something like that and start putting concepts and time frames and classes of relationships and mapping them the way when people try to reverse engineer this instinct into, um, into IF, what they get is a drift. That is to say, they get, they get the, the, the most, pardon me, for people who don't know a drift, they get a, they get a very regimented box model of identical cubicles co with, connected by north, south, east, west, when what we should do is feed, feed the graphing impulse back into, back into the game. Was, so that's, that is my answer. So maybe just to pick up on the, the tension between a spatial model and a temporal model mm -hmm. that, you, that you pointed to, um, just to pick up on a, 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 maybe it was a throwaway or not at the start of your talk, when you were talking about uh, visualization of gameplay as a kind of diagnostic, and you, and you showed some images of Moybridge, and the first time through you had the word montage, mm -hmm. and on the second play of those images you said juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested, so why would you use montage for his breakdown of motion by frames well I'm just intrigued by that well I'm actually I'm actually it's a I'm actually using it as a kind of a, a term of art in digital image editing so that is to say that when you when you go into say uh, Photoshop or something like that and you load a batch of images and you montage them what you get is a contact sheet so that that uh, 2D graphic use of the word is different from in film, basically. That like a con you get a two-dimensional grid of images, and that's a montage. Right, um, and that's why I asked. So, so it's, a, it's a curious so use because normally we would say uh, collage would be for the spatial version, mm -hmm. the, the, the static version of what durationally, at least mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. most other media forms, is a montage. Montage yeah. brings, that's why. I, it's a useful, no, it's a useful distinction, and maybe actually I should think about adopting it. Um, I think the reason I've been doing it has been very, um, some of the, in other versions of this talk, I've used uh, technical terms like, for example, rather than talking about a, um, uh, an averaging of all the images, I talk about a Z projection because the Z projection is actually the term of art in those particular desi software design studios where one does this work, right? There's no, it's not a, <coughs> so because I've been using the five or six kits that I could name that all call that up. Like I think um, Apple Script calls it that. If you want to, yeah, you know, I've I've adopted the word, but it does it does remove a crucial distinction that is then hard to recover yeah. if you don't yeah. use if you don't use collage instead. Mm -hmm. I think that the distinction I was trying to make in the two uses of Moybridge was actually the reason I used juxtaposition was I was thinking specifically of Scott McCloud, so and his so his definition of comics. Yeah. So there. Um, there, the th because the strange thing about the um, the strange thing about the Kingdom Hearts uh, monta uh, montage collage, if you will, is that it's temporal and should be read like a book, and yet we're able to um, use it spatially. That is to say, that up and down have meaning. Right. It's a gross temporal. It's a gross temporal dimension versus a fine temporal dimension. Um, but we're able to treat it almost as if it were a two-dimensional object when it's really a stacked one-dimensional. Um, so that's, that's, I was, great. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, thanks for the interesting talk, Jeremy. Uh, so I, I have a question about 
cultural analytics as a as a field. So a, a kind of question just about the, the the theoretical approach, and it's about whether from the talk it seemed that cultural analytics is a field kind of like a, a specialization, you could say, of information visualization applied to cultural forms, with some attention called toward pulling out different cultural phenomena through mm -hmm. through information visualization. And, and if so, the field of information visualization is a field really about a kind of method or technique. So people like Ben Schneiderman come up with uh, uh, say superior methods of information visualization to take mm -hmm. multivariate data and, mm -hmm. and the best mm -hmm. way to, to, to see that, that data. And if, so is cultural analytics something like that where you're trying to come up with a range of new, more visually oriented uh, uh, and say aesthetically informed uh, techniques? Or is it a field because of the term culture, that, that you're trying to actually uh, reveal specific types of cultural uh, phenomena. Right. Because if the latter is the case, then does that also mean that the theory su should suggest some, uh, uh, some structured observations about culture and some, some structured ways to reveal those, those observations? This, so, is, this is wonderful. This is really great. I think, I think so a few, a few quick distinctions. First, I have a feeling that um, I have a feeling that Lev Manovich and I would give different definitions of cultural analytics, and that's okay. Um, Sometimes I've asked Lev, Lev but, about that too. Yeah, well, you should. Yeah, definitely ask. Definitely ask. Keep asking him that. But I think you know, and and it's also something that honestly has shifted over time. I I often don't use the word cultural analytics as a branch to to describe you know as a, as an umbrella to describe what I do. I I. Um, refer to it constantly because a lot of the work I do comes out of those collaborations, but um, the aspects of, but there are, but it has certain fundamental limitations such as the fact that um, uh, if you're only going to visualize cultural forms of visual media, what are exactly the non-cultural forms? That's the one that always just great, you know, just grates at me. It's, it's like I can't, it's as if I don't think there are any, I can't think of them. Uh, I don't believe so. So there's 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 that aspect to it. But I think also the question is um, coming out of a background uh, in um, uh, you know my I did my my uh, doctoral thesis in a literature department. I'm very invested in uh, interpretation, uh, close reading, and uh, for me often maps of territories, however they are made, are ways of orienting myself to a space that I then dive into. I think largely when uh, Lev Manovich uses the phrase cultural analytics, he's taking slightly more of a pure distant reading approach. The thing he's primarily motivated by is the idea that we could fundamentally rethink very large categories and terms in ways that um, replace whole descriptions of cultural spaces. But to me, um, the thing that makes me excited both about the mapping and about the possibility of new genre theories is situated readings. And for me, situated readings are where the new genre theories come from. You actually can't get to the reorganization of the space without diving in first. I think that's actually a pretty fundamental difference in a way. Um, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be both the close and the distant reader, and I actually think that they're connected in a sort of a cybernetic feedback loop. Um, I, think, I think cultural analytics straight from the horse's mouth is more of a distant, more of a distant reading straight up method. Oh. 
like to get back to a point that you brought up while uh, you were showing the Gradius playthrough. Um, that was, um, you were talking about how the volcano uh, ended up resulting in more deaths than the final boss mm -hmm. and, the, and how the final boss was timed. Um, but this was information that was already known even pr without the visualization, right? I mean, the, the, the people anecdotally already told you about the, uh, uh, told the researcher, the, the person who made the game about the, um, who made the video about the, the leth lethality of the volcano. And if you look at, this, at the genre of shooters, the timed final boss is a long-held uh, um, genre con uh, con con convention. Even if we didn't know that about Gradius, we kind of knew that about shmups. So, so I, I, I'm curious about what about what you ask, why, why, if games are already visualizations, why aren't they more commonly seen as visualizations? Is it, it seems to me that, that games are more than just vi vi visualizations, and that's the thing that intrigues people about games more than the visual aspect. It's, it, even games like video games, which are, which obviously have this visual bit, bit of it, <laughs> don't seem to be able to do more than just visualize, and that's the thing that people find interesting about it. It's also when you see things like heat maps or those World of Warcraft studies that you, that, that you were referring to. That's why people are looking at this numerical data, this kind of game state data, because what is shown visually is only such a tiny little slice of what's actually happening in the game. Right. So I'm curious as to, maybe you've alluded to this in your last answer about what sort of insight this could give us regarding genres. Um, I'm wondering what, what does this approach really bring us that we couldn't get from other methods that already exist? Well, I think in, in any given circumstance, well, first, uh, are games just visualizations? No. I don't think anyone in the room would say that. That would be silly. Uh, so games are not just visualizations. That's one of many things that they are. Many games are are clearly in part and some in whole visualizations among other things. Um, the, the, the point about what will you get that you couldn't have gotten any other way is going to totally vary by technique and by design from game to game to game. And it's going to vary about from the general to the specific. That is to say that some, some visualizations will be able to tell you this game is a typical use of cutscenes. Unlike those 500 other games, this game has exactly the median number at exactly the modal length, right? That game, that game that you never would have paid attention to for any other reason. So situated knowledge in, in, in mass visualization, which can be done statistically, right? Where, where visualization helps you is with things where you're basically dealing with mass statistics using also various kinds of spatial reasoning. It's a hack, right? But with Gradius specifically, as you said quite insightfully, uh, we knew that about shoot-em-ups. We didn't necessarily know that about Gradius, right? So some, some forms of knowledge that the, boss, that the boss is destroyed after 27 seconds, we could have also found that out very easily by just decompiling the thing, right? So that goes to another question you had. What are the forms of knowledge that this creates that are exclusive? You couldn't find it out any other way. Um, I can probably go through my various decks and try to come up with some examples that would be very, very difficult and time-consuming to locate statistically. Um, some of them have to do with the things, if I was going to, 
approach it as a classification, I would say there are things that games do not know about themselves. They know how to c calculate camera location, but they don't know and cannot know because they do not articulate in their own code the, the statistical distribution of their camera locations over time. That's only a consequence of running the game for a very long time. I'd say another class of information that, that Gradius is a very poor example of because it's locked in so many ways, but many other games are very good examples of, is that visualization will often show you what's particular about gameplay. That is to say, it's exactly, it's exactly not where it gives you insights into the into the gross formal structure, abstract structures of the design, but shows you the very situated way in which one player is different from all other players just at that one moment. Why did this one Mario out of 134 do this one little thing and then get over that block that none of the other Marios did? And you spot, you spot that one moment. And there, it's, it's telling you something in this very rich, quick, refined, situated way. Now, this, is, this could all be special pleading. That is to say, I really like visual representation, and it makes me happy. And so I want to do my work through visual representation. And so I say, guys, this is great. We should visually represent everything. You know, I've got this hammer, and it works on everything. Um, but I don't think that's the case. I think this talk is, is just saying this is one tool in a toolkit. It does some things very well and does some things very poorly. And it's interesting when it strategically scales and shows you particular things in the context of very, very mass observations. However, would I go into uh, the Blizzard uh, virtual economy unit and recommend it to all of their economics PhDs who are working on money sinks? Probably not. I think, I think they probably know their domain space better than I do. And right now, they don't need, to, need me to draw a picture of it. I would imagine they're generating their own visualizations of their own data. Yeah. I think almost everybody is. And the thing that is that if I wanted to brand mine and start selling them in the open marketplace, the thing I would say that my visualizations do that you can't get from the competitors <laughs> is, um, is that they're primarily oriented towards uh, defamiliarization. That is to say that they're supposed to be strange. And they're supposed to be non-transparent and they're supposed to make you say, is that even the game? And then you look at it and you think of the game in a new way, in a new temporal or spatial modality. Yeah. Right. It, it seems that something else that your visualizations do differently than a lot of other information visualization techniques is use the data as its own representation. So when you map the Time magazine <laughs> covers or the gameplay, you're actually using screenshots of, uh, of, of uh, gameplay. You're actually using the Time magazine covers as, as, as the data and then yeah. looking at uh, in a gestalt way how we can uh, Make, make observations. So that's, that seems to yeah. be a, a difference. Can you talk a little bit more about what it means to use the data as, as its own representation? Yeah, yeah. And I think that it, it's interesting because um, the, I, I was having a conversation with uh, William a little bit earlier about this, actually, and about the fact that there are a couple, uh, again, metaphors that are helpful for me. One in, a, in, a, in digital compression is the difference between lossless and lossy. And so this idea that in some way there are certain representations or certain transforms of, uh, say, Frogger um, that are actually transverse slices of the original data matrix of that session. If you rotate the data matrix back the other way, you're watching a video. If you rotate it again and press play, you're just watching the same video sideways. 
right? That's what slit scan video is, right? It's, so that's, that's lossless, um, and that's interesting. Uh, it's also interesting because it enters into a set of physical metaphors that I find useful because I think about long traditions of uh, people struggling to engage the natural world as temporal spatial, so the tree rings and the cliff faces and things like that. The dangerous thing about those metaphors is that they're naturalizing, right? That they tend to, they tend to make you think that the visualization is somehow real or even like more real than the gameplay, which it's just a sort of a hopeless attempt to avoid the ephemerality of in, 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 in certain ways. Um, I, I try to hold that in mind um, that, that, the, that the visualization is a fetish, among other things. But the thing that's useful to me about, um, about working with the original media pixel data in working with the um, visualization is that I taught a media arts course called Sculpting Time and taught people, for example, that um, a, uh, a circular wipe when you're editing video is like sharpening a pencil. It is. Actually, that's a very that's a pixel it's a pixel specific way of describing what you just did. You just sort of shaved off concentric rings until you got your pencil lead, and bam, you faded to black. You know, circle wipe in, right? And these kinds of the the thing that that sort of metaphoric thinking does for me, especially when I'm trying to see things from multiple points of view, is it suggests an entire unexplored vocabulary. I'm like, wait, what are all of the verbs I can think of that have to do with a sculptural encounter. And suddenly I'm outside the vocabulary of the genre of wipes as received through certain popular cinematic traditions, and I'm boring holes in my video and taking core samples and doing all kinds of other crazy stuff. And that just, that to me is productive in a very undisciplined way. It just, it allows for the possibility of the new. Just to follow, because it was it was a useful conversation, um, because Lev, of course, makes a more ontological claim about the use of those time covers. Um, and, and uh, direct visualization. Direct visualization. He called it. Yeah. Which, of course, it isn't, because they're they're pixel representations of and even Mo even a bit of tweaking. On multiply transformed, yeah. multiply rescanned, multiply color corrected, dependent on the flatbed, dependent on the fact that we, we cut all the red frames off because otherwise the whole visualization would just look like a cloud of red frames. They're, they're deeply contingent media artifacts. And that's a really important point because it goes to, we were talking about brain scans and Joe Dumit's work in that regard. That so this tension between the metaphor and the, the natural mm -hmm. is a really fraught one. And, mm -hmm. and this, this plays right into it. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's really refreshing to hear your critical take on it. And that's, that's. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's part of, um, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get you, there's no get out of jail free card for falling in love with your theoretical like instruments. You know, you can't just say, oh, I'm super aware of this. So everything's okay now. I think it's actually just part of engaging a theoretical apparatus that you say, you are going to build your tools and you are going to fall in love with them and they are going to deeply contain your own self, your own assumptions. And when you go down that road, when you really want to see the, see the stars and you start building telescopes, um, uh, you need to maintain a sense of humor and constantly check for a sense of perspective because um, there, are, there, are certain, there are certain predictable errors that come in. Uh, di direct visualization, though, I think is not, is one of those things that we can 
Uh, Lev's not using that term anymore either, by the way. Uh, he has stopped. Um, <laughs> so, don't, you, uh, it, it, yeah, you can still make fun of him for doing it, but, <laughs> but he's not doing it anymore. Um, uh, but that, 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 I think, is just, it's, it's a, um, that's just a category error, you know. That's, that's a simpler animal. So um, where is this all going? Uh, where do you see it evolving into, uh, say, in a decade? Ah, uh, uh, gosh. Well, we spent all lunch kind of talking about, <laughs> about decade out projects. I think that the... Um, I'm interested in the, the broad technique. Uh, I mean, it's, right. It's very inventive. And, right. And, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so it it to me, no, it is, g I mean, to me, what gets exciting about this, it's um, uh, to, s to, to stretch out the formula. You know, in some ways it is formulaic. It's like a hammer, you know, gets you so far. And you say, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explore ways of thinking and new relationships to media and I'm going to build myself little machines that scale, and then I'm going to pour in all of the, all of the game books, all, all of the game books from the 1970s up to today, written in 17 languages, in, 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 uh, in 40, you know, uh, 40 different um, you know, publishing markets, and I'm going to extract their um, branching plot structures like little chemical networks. And then I'm going to analyze all of them, and then I'm going to find the 30 or 40 most amazing single pages situated in those networks in all of those 4,000 or 8,000 books that I never would have read. And then I'm going to do a small series of like essays and interventions and then I'm going to look for structures exactly like that one that I found in other media forms. And, what I'm, and then I'm going to do a Russian, uh, a, 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 um, a, a structural analysis of the Russian folktale for branching plot structures as it applies to AAA titles in a cross-media way that extends from the deep history of branching instructional texts in the 1950s, like Tudor text, how to read Shakespeare, how to um, win at bridge, um, up through the second-person revolution of role-playing games and interactive fiction games and on into things like uh, Bioshock. Right? Um, where you, or, well, Bioshock's a really bad example. Sorry. Uh, Knights of the Old Republic. Um, and, um, and say, uh, um, and that formalism, and that is, it's a, it's a highly scaled strategic formalism which does uh, uh, gross violence on its, on its march to victory, but will enable, this is the dream, this is the dream part, it enables a host of new situated readings that say, in this context of a genre that never existed before now, this, this way where we regroup and we say, these things are all like each other. Uh, there's, a, there's, a there's a genre of game book that have um, a, a circular structure of linked pages that have no entry point, and so only cheaters read them. Right? There are very few books that do this. They all have many other aesthetic characteristics in common. Um, when an author does this, they often predictably do many other things. Um, there are also a few video games that have a structure like that. Um, uh, one of them is, um, oh shoot, the, um, the, uh, hacking sim the cinematic hacking simulation game whose name just escaped me. Uh, no, I'll come back to it. 
you have to open up the source files and, and alter them in order to access certain parts of the game because you're supposed to cheat by editing the, by editing the play files in order, you know, that's part of the game. Uh, so, so when those structures get tied to complex constructions based on family resemblances, uh, you're really starting to talk about aesthetics and you're doing a reading on a particular page of a particular book like um, uh, uh, Cortazar's Rehuela, uh, Hopscotch, and you say, ah, this structure which occurs across this genre theory which we know extends across video games and experimental literature and pulp books for 10-year-olds. Um, I am reading this now and I'm reading it in a new way. And at that point, I'm going to declare mission accomplished. That's my, that's my dream. So kind of looking at a lot of the visualizations, it seems like the, the most uh, interesting examples are from you know games 10 plus years old. And it seems that kind of a lot of the new games almost kind of resist this type of analysis because hmm. they don't have access to the data you would need to visualize something like, um, what was the game? Was it, was that, what was it called? Call of Duty or whatever the, okay. the map was. I mean, so, Interesting. um, do you so see, you're talking about HUDlessness? Like the idea that, the idea that like a lot of the, the trend of, of certain graphic elements is, I mean, yeah, it, I mean, a lot of it, I mean, yeah, so those are kind of like high contrast games like Mario or even, you know, uh, Asteroids might okay. be cool. But, you know, what, what about kind of really new games that kind of don't have that kind of structure that's so easy to visualize? Kind of how, how does that kind of change the, the way you, how okay, does that kind okay, of limit okay, okay. the so kind of work is, you can do? This is great. I, I get where you're going. Okay, so there's, okay, so um, because games are highly structured by design in certain ways, because they are informatic, um, However, there's a large trend towards certain types of remediated realism, right? Not just lens flares and things like that, but physics and camera jostle and things like that. You add layers and layers of this. That aesthetic trend starts to transform certain things that are toy problems, right? In, in Wolfenstein, you're running around, uh, old Wolfenstein, you're running around and your head's not bobbing. But as soon as the head bobby algorithm gets added to the mix, all of a sudden you need uh, camera stabilization algorithm, right? So you start, so as far as certain games engage a certain remediated faux realism, which is mainly, I'm, I'm talking about Bolter and Grusin, it's mainly actually cinema. It's not actually realism at all. Uh, I might get a lens flare off of my glasses, but you know, uh, you know that's it, right? Um, um, uh, but man, the jungles, does Drake wear glasses? Uh, I don't, I don't, anyway, getting sidetracked. The point is, to a certain, in, to a certain extent, you're absolutely correct, but I think that's tied in with a fairly specific aesthetic movement. That is to say that, um, that uh, on the one hand, things that are toy problems, they're not even computer vision, they're just image processing, start to turn into like medium soft computer vision problems because you're not able to just read the info off of the pixel location on the screen anymore for all of these very complicated reasons. At the same time, however, there are a lot of aesthetic movements in a lot of areas of games that are not headed that way. That is, it's, it's, actually, quite, uh, it's actually quite narrowly focused and there have been a lot of um, backlashes uh, against exactly that. So moving forward, as games become more 
sophisticated and complex in their forms of visual representation, the problem space will always get wider than it was in the 80s. However, moving forward, there is not a unidirectional historical move towards something where uh, reading data out of a game will always be as difficult as me like scanning data out of, out of this room with a live camera. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some great time lapse of Assassin's Creed too, and I mean, there's there's mm -hmm. things that, that are that are very very contemporary in their look, but nevertheless have uh, visualization going on interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, and I also want to point out that uh, Castle Wolfenstein 3D is not the old Wolfenstein. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what? There's the uh, Apple II game. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But um, but I, I wanted to ask about my the Wolfenstein is older than your <laughs> Wolfenstein. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so, but I wanted to ask him about just the purposes of visualization because you talked about you know more exploratory so you know provocative sort of, you know ideational purposes mm -hmm. um, as being very important to you and um, Philip's question made me think that actually you know that the one of the things that Gradius video is so good for is is for showing someone who educationally instructively who doesn't really know much about shmups mm -hmm. some of the basic things about how they're like that what it's is constant and what things right. vary you know it's, and and so, and of course, there's, there's, you can imagine, you know, forensic uses. I mean, there's mm -hmm. like, or, or, or uh, rhetorical uses, like in the courtroom, the mm -hmm. specials, and that's very different than let me figure out what to study. So I, I'm sort of wondering whether these approaches to games um, are focused on uh, this exploratory, provocative, uh, ideational sort of mode, or, or are they things that shade off into other uses of, uh, I mean, I, I'm also thinking well, of, of Microsoft Labs, sort of, you know, somebody could be defending how, like, uh, you know, it's, it's time for their annual review and they need to show that they built a good level. Right. Let me get, let me get this a log. This log that, is right? awesome. That's, if you, I right. made that log, <laughs> and if you take this log away, the whole level yes. doesn't work anymore. Exactly. The yeah. room just doesn't hang together. Right, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I think in some ways, the idea, so, you spend uh, an individual spending 60 hours on a game, uh, an individual spending 600 hours maybe on a, on a World of Warcraft account. Just one individual. Forget, forget all of the World of Warcraft video on YouTube. Right? Forget the sort of uh, you know, Google Engram viewer of gameplay, right? which we can go there. Right? And that becomes just a form of mass cultural narrative. Right? So we're, we're, we're talking about we're talking about a form of game sociology that complements game ethnography, right? So we can go there, but I think there's also the, there's also the question of just um, journaling and diarying. That is to say, simply self-reflective self-knowledge. What I find over and over again when, um, when you got a beta test group of one for your latest visualization <laughs> experiment, I play the game, and then I study the recording of me playing the game, and I am shocked. I think anyone who's ever videotaped themselves teaching a class has this moment, and it used to happen a lot on, on uh, home answering machines, when you'd go into a house and press a button and hear your own voice. Um, but in some ways, I think um, defamiliarizing holistic representations of play also are, are one, one route to a form of self-knowledge. And that, that form of self-knowledge could be something as trivial as this is the place where I need to improve in order to get 10 more points or, or, or something like that. Um, but uh, if games are going to continue ex to expand as I, hope, as I hope they continue to expand to address wider and wider aesthetic 
uh, aesthetic areas and wider and wider uh, sort of social subject matter, then self-knowledge in games is not a, is not a trivial thing. It's 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 big deal. So I think this is probably as good a time as any for the obligatory Bwam question. But oh. what about Minecraft? Um, okay. Yes. I, I don't think in this case uh, it actually challenges anything that you've been talking about. But I'm I'm wondering. Uh, in a game like Minecraft, where you don't even have sort of a, um, where, where it's completely procedurally generated, so uh, you can't even have a basis of comparison between any two playthroughs from a spatial sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, but then the, maybe the temporal flow of the game is always the same. You know, you're thrown onto uh, defenseless into your first night, and, you know, the monsters are going to come, and how do you survive the first night? Right. So, what sort of methods, um, in terms of sort of massively scalable either visualization or non visual analysis, mm -hmm. How could we start to draw out sort of higher order uh, player tendencies, like what you were talking about earlier, player theory? Right. You know, how many players seek this, the solace of shelter on their first night? How many players seek to fortify themselves on the first well, night? And and the, the thing, so there, there are two. Th you either. Okay, so there's there's going to be a lot of depending on Minecraft is going to have a lot of different ways that you can approach it analytically in ways that will strategically scale but give you interesting details. And some of them are visual and some of them aren't. There are a lot of great, a lot of great resources and a lot of great formats in Minecraft that you can just go, um, uh, go straight to the level files, you know, go straight to the logs. Um, but, um, and some of that will be about distributed player behavior and some of it will be um, spatial, you know, it will be, it'll be mapping. Um, that you can just watch the landscape change. I mean, get rid of the player, right? You know, like just watch the landscape change. In some ways, that's part of the story of Minecraft. So time-lapse photography, the kind of, you know, uh, time-lapse photography in which playing Minecraft becomes a heroic geological event, like carving the Grand Canyon, is part of the rhetoric of the game. So when we visualize in that mode, we're fulfilling the dream of the game, right? That's why when you see, um, uh, you know, I did not invent game visualization. The more we look for it, the more we will find it throughout the historical record. And you know, some of the most impressive game visualization being work done is not. Um, uh, I mean, Distella Map is fantastic, and, and there's all kinds of great um, professional visualization and visualization artists doing beautiful work in this area. But um, the bootstrap fan culture stuff is often just the best. It's because it's electrically in conversation with the sort of the dream of the dream of the game. Uh, I went halfway off the rail there for one second, but to actually fin finish answering your question, um, what we do when we go into Minecraft is anything we want. But one of the things that I would do, um, probably, is to actually look at the look at the way that any typology of Minecraft players that we already have, such as the safe player versus the player that's out in the danger zone, the player that is making things versus the player that is harvesting things, et cetera, et cetera. So we have this way that we already know to temporalize and classify the modalities of the way that Minecraft is played. And anytime we already know, uh, what everyone does at the workplace. Um, I think it's time to just sort of drop everything and go to the modes of visualization that will tell us that we're wrong. Um, in that case, so rather than starting and attempting to build detectors that will detect the safe character versus the not safe character, you, 
you build something that will just tell you about space or tell you about time or tell you about motion, agitation, that would be interesting. Just when you're looking around a lot but you're not going anywhere, you build a little agitation detector and you just check your Minecraft uh, you know, environments for areas of construction and areas of agitation and then you create a new class of uh, play experience based on whatever you find. At that point, that's when I personally am getting excited about what this is doing because I'm not performing a typology that we already had that said, well, there are achievers and there are like socializers and I've, I've built a computer that can always tell you which one you are. Right? And, that, and I'm just totally bored by that uh, because, and nobody else would listen to the computer either. If the computer tells us that I'm something I'd never even heard of before, I might kind of get excited about it. Okay, well, thanks for Okay, well, thank, thank you all. Please um, uh, feel free to follow up on email with questions. And if anyone wants any uh, copies of any of the materials that flashed across the screen, um, I'm just happy to provide those too.